Hi everyone, welcome to the Internist's Guide to, a limited series dedicated to high yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Stephanie Poon, cardiologist, on the CCS and CHFS heart failure guidelines update, defining a new pharmacologic standard of care for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, released in 2021. Dr. Stephanie Poon is a cardiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. After completing her fellowship training in cardiology, advanced heart failure slash transplant, and echocardiography at the University of Toronto, she obtained a Master of Science in Quality Improvement and Patient Safety from the Institute of Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation. She's now the Medical Director of the Heart Function Clinic at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and is a member of the Canadian Heart Failure Society Board of Directors, as well as the Canadian Cardiovascular Society Heart Failure Guidelines Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Poon. Thank you very much, Catherine, for having me. Okay, well, we're thrilled for you to be here. As you know, mentioned in your bio, you're clearly an expert. And so in many ways, this first question seems kind of redundant. But I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your background in cardiology, your interest in heart failure, and how it manifests in your day-to-day practice. Yeah, so as you said earlier, uh, I am a cardiologist that specializes in heart failure and the medical director of our heart function clinic at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Uh, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it is an academic center affiliated with the University of Toronto. Um, As the medical director of the Heart Function Clinic and the Heart Failure Program at Sunnybrook, heart failure, as you can guess, takes up almost my entire clinical practice. When I am not attending on our coronary intensive care unit, I'm in the heart failure clinic seeing patients with heart failure almost every single day. And even when I am working in the CICU, I always like to find an opportunity to teach my residents, nursing staff, pharmacy colleagues, patients, pretty much everyone that I interact with about heart failure. And uh, on the rare occasions when I'm not involved in direct patient care, I like to spend my time educating others about heart failure and advocating for heart failure patients as a member of multiple national committees dedicated to heart failure, including uh, our Canadian Cardiovascular Society Heart Failure Guidelines Committee. Well, that's just great. So let's talk about those guidelines then. So, you know, we had in the prior guideline this concept of triple therapy, um, but in the new guidelines, we have quadruple therapy for all patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So can you tell us about the difference between these two therapy regimens? Yeah, sure. So if you look back at the algorithm in the 2017 Canadian Cardiovascular Society Heart Failure Guidelines, the focus at that time, as you said, was on triple therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or HEFREF, which consisted of beta blockers, ACE inhibitors or ARBs, and mineralocorticoid antagonists or MRAs for short. And these were considered to be our first line drugs. And it was only until patients continued to have NYJ class two or more symptoms that we would consider adding in other medications such as Secubitril Valsartan or Vabardine. So that's how it was written. It was a very tiered system. But as time went on, we accumulated more evidence that perhaps we should be starting more of these evidence-based therapies at an earlier point in a heart failure patient's trajectory and that we should not be waiting until they've, you know, quote unquote, failed triple therapy. For example, we know from the Pioneer HF trial that within one week of Secubitril-Valsartan initiation in patients hospitalized with decompensated heart failure, we can see a significant reduction in NT-pro-BMP levels. So already this was helping us to start building a case for earlier upfront initiation of ARNIs. And then came the huge breakthrough of the SGLT2 inhibitors. 
Recently, two landmark trials have published in the New England Journal of Medicine regarding the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. There was DAPA-HF and EMPRA reduced. And ultimately, both of these trials demonstrated a statistically significant reduction in the combined primary endpoint of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So based on all of these new clinical trials, we have now moved beyond our old concept of triple therapy to a new paradigm. And now we recognize that there are likely at least five pathways activated in heart failure. And instead of triple therapy, the foundation of HEFREF medical management should consist of quadruple therapy, which includes ARNIs, ACE inhibitors, and ARBs altogether, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid antagonists, and SGLT2 inhibitors. Awesome. Well, that's so interesting to hear kind of about how that's evolved over time. You know, you mentioned salcubitril valsartan, like the ARNI class, and I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about that. So what, like, what are ARNIs? Um, why are they relevant to the physiology of HEFREF? Yeah, so ARNI stands for angiotensin receptor necrolysin inhibitor, and it refers to the combination of sacubitril and valsartan. This medication simultaneously promotes the necrolysin pathway in addition to inhibiting the RAS pathway. So sacubitril inhibits nephrolysin, and this prevents it from degrading natriuretic peptides into inactive fragments, which results in the promotion of beneficial downstream effects, including a decrease in blood pressure, sympathetic tone, fibrosis, hypertrophy, and an increase in diuresis, which are all great things for patients with heart failure. In the Paradigm HF trial, patients with HEFREF who were started on sacubitril valsartan experienced a significant reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization, as opposed to those who were treated with justinalopril. And the use of sacubitril valsartan also led to a significant reduction in all-cause mortality, which is the holy grail of all clinical trial outcomes and exceptionally hard to achieve. So that's why it made it immediately into our 2017 uh, CCS heart failure guidelines, even before it was available to use in Canada. Uh, we also know from other studies that ARNIs outperform ACE inhibitors or ARBs in terms of cardiac reverse remodeling indices with striking improvements in left ventricular ejection fraction, diameter, and volume, which were observed as early as three months and became more significant with longer follow-up to 12 months. And this is really important because we know that LVEF is tied to a patient's overall prognosis. So specifically, if their LVEF remains at 35% or less, they will be more predisposed to sudden death, which is why these patients would then need a defibrillator for primary prevention. So it's really in their best interest for us to try and optimize the medications which will maximize their LVEF as much as possible, which is another argument for earlier upfront initiation of ARNIs. That's really exciting. The results that you saw with those trials, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the changes to this first line therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, in the prior guideline, in the 2017 guideline, we would use ACEs and ARBs as first line and ARNIs were kind of a backup. Nowadays, we use ARNIs first, but is there a time when you might use an ACE or an ARB instead of an ARNI? Yes, absolutely. You know, sometimes if your patient's systolic blood pressure is too low, namely less than 95 to 100 millimeters of mercury, you might want to consider starting them on a low dose ACE inhibitor or ARB instead. 
you know, some of my colleagues actually prefer an ARB if they think that eventually the blood pressure will improve and they can then transition the patient smoothly onto an ARNI without that 36 hour washout period that is mandated if you switch from an ACE inhibitor to an ARNI. Otherwise, if there is reason to believe that their blood pressure will always be low and they're always kind of in that low 90s, high 80s range, then it might not be unreasonable to start a very, very low dose ACE inhibitor instead. Also, realistically, not all patients will necessarily be able to take Secubitrol Valsartan due to the cost of this medication. In Ontario, Secubitrol Valsartan costs almost $250 a month or roughly $8 a day. I mean, if you're eligible for the Ontario Drug Benefits Program, namely if you're over 65 years old or on a social assistance program, then Secubitrol Valsartan will be covered. However, if you are younger than 65, are employed, and do not have a good drug plan, then cost may become an issue. And in those cases, we would then use an ACE inhibitor or ARB instead. So sad that cost should impact what we choose as, you know, first-line evidence-based medical therapy for these patients. I totally agree. And actually, I, I suspect that we are going to be working on this in our heart failure advocacy group to advocate for equal access to care, not only to specialists and you know, physicians, but also to the medications that are proven to improve their overall outcomes. It just makes sense. So let's talk about another medication class, which was also new in the new guideline, um, or plays a new role, I should say, which is the SGLT2 inhibitors. And you've talked a little bit about you know, some of the trials that prompted the addition of these to quadruple therapy, but can you just talk a little bit more about what this medication class is and, and some of the data behind them? Yeah, sure. So SGLT2 inhibitors are a class of medications, which were actually initially approved to lower blood glucose levels in patients with diabetes. So it came to market versus a diabetes drug. Then it was discovered that these medications could also improve outcomes for patients with heart failure, regardless of whether they had diabetes or not. I alluded previously to two landmark trials which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine regarding the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in HEFREF. DAPA-HF focused on the use of dipagliflozin and EMPER-REDUCE studied the effects of empagliflozin. And both of these trials consisted of patients with an ejection fraction of 40% or less. Now, approximately half of the cohort had diabetes in both trials, but importantly, half did not. And another subtle difference between the two trials was that Emperor Reduced used a slightly lower EGFR cutoff of 20 as opposed to 30 for DAPA-HF. However, the primary outcome in both trials was similar and was a composite of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So it ends up both of these trials demonstrated a statistically significant reduction in the primary outcome, which was consistent regardless of diabetes status, age, sex, or baseline use of ARNI. And it's really based on the strength of these two trials that SGLT2 inhibitors were included in our 2021 heart failure guidelines. Very cool use of a, of a diabetes drug for this new purpose. So, you know, with this quadruple therapy, it's a lot of medication that a patient might need to start if they bear a new diagnosis of HEFREF. How quickly do you tend to start these medications and adjust them back up to the target doses? Yeah, we should be starting these therapies as soon as possible. <laughs> That's pretty much the quick and short answer of it. But I mean, even if you're meeting these patients for the very first time in hospital with a new diagnosis of HEFREF, 
Guideline directed medical therapy should be started as soon as patients are nearing a euvolemic state, assuming their blood pressure and renal function will tolerate. Arguably, the best time to initiate new drug therapies is actually in hospital because it increases the likelihood the patients will continue to take these medications once they are discharged. And it affords you the luxury of being able to monitor their blood work as well as their vital signs on a daily basis, which is something that you don't get when you are starting them in clinic. However, if you are meeting a patient with a new diagnosis of HEFRAF in clinic, chances are they are not that decompensated and initiation of guideline-directed medical therapies can start immediately. Now, you don't have to start all four right away. And as a matter of fact, most of us don't do this because of the potential cumulative side effects. However, depending on the patient's comorbidities, volume status, blood pressure, heart rate, renal function, and potassium levels, you may decide on combining certain classes of drugs with one another. So for example, if your patient is almost euvolemic and they have diabetes or borderline high potassium, you may opt to start a beta blocker and SGLT2 inhibitor on their first visit and leave the ARNI and or MRA for subsequent visits. So every patient is a little bit different. Even in the guidelines, we acknowledge that there is a lack of evidence favoring one particular titration strategy for guideline-directed medical therapies over another. And this is where the art of heart failure management comes in and the reason why I love it. You know, the goal is to tailor an evidence-based regimen to each patient that presents before you with their own set of unique comorbidities and clinical circumstances. In any case, uh, we should be up titrating these medications every two to four weeks. So you start at a low dose, but then you move up as quickly as possible every two to four weeks so that ideally we will reach target or maximally tolerated doses over a period of three to six months. Now, you mentioned, of course, your strategy for each patient is going to be tailored to their circumstances. I'm wondering, do you tend to prioritize up titrating to target dose first versus adding on the additional like quadruple therapy? Or would you try to get all your medications on board first and then up titrate? Yeah, I like to get a little bit of everything on board first. I feel like these medications work very synergistically. And so even if you have them on tiny doses of everything, it's, it's you know, um, in some cases, perhaps maybe even more beneficial than having them on, you know, maximal doses. However, that being said, sometimes you are limited by a person's blood pressure or renal function. And if you then had to choose uh, because their blood pressure is a little bit on the lower side, then what I tend to do is maximize the medications that I know have the greatest benefits in terms of uh, positive cardiac remodeling effects. So trying to maximize then the ARNI or the beta blocker over the mineralocorticoid antagonists or SGLT2 inhibitors simply because those first two classes of drugs likely have a greater impact upon increasing your left ventricular ejection fraction than the others. So sometimes if I'm forced to prioritize, that's how I do it. But if you've got a great blood pressure and you don't have to worry about renal function, et cetera, then it's probably best to try and get them on a little bit of everything and then move up. Well, that's a really useful tidbit. Thank you for that. Okay, so we've talked about, you know, your first line quadruple therapy, but the guidelines do mention some other medications that, that aren't really new to the 2021 guidelines, but I think are worth talking about. So what's Evabradine and when do you use it? Yeah, so Evabradine is a sinus node inhibitor, 
And it works by blocking the quote unquote funny channel in the sinoatrial node cells. And yes, that's its real name. Uh, this decreases the depolarization slope and enables Vavardine to slow down the heart rate without affecting systole, thereby preserving contractility and increasing your stroke volume. Now, in the SHIFT trial, Vavardine significantly decreased the primary endpoint of cardiovascular mortality and heart failure hospitalizations by 18% on top of standard therapy. So the guidelines state that if patients are in sinus rhythm with a heart rate over 70 beats per minute, you could consider adding a Vavardine at that point. And why are we so fixated on getting their heart rates lower than 70 beats per minute? Well, that's because we know that a decrease of an initially increased heart rate is associated with improved mortality in patients with heart failure. So as a result, most heart failure clinicians like myself target a resting heart rate between 50 to 60 beats per minute or as low as tolerated. Wow. That, that feels kind of crazy, but it makes sense why you would target something that low. <laughs> Do you find that you're using a lot of Evabradine or is this something that, you know, it's just the occasional patient might be started on it? Well, because, you know, it isn't in the foundational four, oftentimes less patients tend to be on Evabradine, but I feel like it is also a medication that is greatly underutilized. And uh, part of it may be access issues. Again, uh, cost can be a barrier. There is a limited use code of 538 for Vabardine, um, but I think, you know, generally speaking, I do have a lot of patients in my heart function clinic on Vabardine. It is exceptionally useful, particularly in those cases where, for example, sometimes when patients are newly diagnosed with HFREF and have a really bad ejection fraction, we're talking, you know, way less than 30%, their blood pressures typically tend to be very, very low initially, and you can manage just to sneak them on a tiny little dose of beta blocker. But what oftentimes ends up happening, if you use the Evabradine right away, interestingly, over time, it actually helps to increase the blood pressure. Um, the two work synergistically to have this effect. And then oftentimes later on down the road, you're able to uptitrate the beta blockers and other therapies more effectively, simply because you've got Evabradine in there fairly early. So sometimes I find that it's very useful in those circumstances and is certainly something we should not forget about. Wow. So it sounds like we should probably be a little bit less fearful of adding that on earlier on then. Oh, definitely. The, the side effect profile is very, very small. As a matter of fact, it does not drop blood pressure at all, which is the best thing about that medication. And as well, it does not impact kidneys or um, potassium levels. So very safe to use in conjunction with our other therapies and effective as well. Awesome. So important to know that we have that in our back pocket. Okay. So what about the combination of hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate? When do we use that in heart failure? Yeah, so isosorbide dinitrate and hydralazine is a good combination of drugs to use for patients who have contraindications to ACE inhibitors, ARBs, or ARNIs, which is uh, typically in the form of renal insufficiency. Now, we know from the VHEFT trial that the combination of hydralazine and nitrates led to lower mortality at three years in patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 45% compared to placebo or prazosin, it's a very interesting uh, combination there that they chose the different groups, an alpha blocker in there. But anyway, uh, the 
follow-up trial, we have two demonstrated that use of enalapril in these same patients led to lower mortality compared to the combination of hydralazine and nitrates, which is why use of ACE inhibitors should be considered first unless patients have contraindications. That being said, the AHEFT trial did show that there may be benefit for African-American patients with advanced heart failure to receive hydralazine and nitrates in addition to standard therapy as this combination was so effective at increasing survival within this group, the study was actually terminated early. So that's why it's in our guidelines as such. So it sounds like this combination has a much more niche role compared with evabradine and some of our other kind of secondary agents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So now the 2021 guidelines discuss yet another medication class, uh, Verisigwat, which is an oral SGC stimulator. So what is that medication? When do you use it? Are you using it? Well, Verisigwat was studied in the Victoria trial and was shown to be effective at reducing the combined endpoint of death from cardiovascular causes or heart failure hospitalizations among patients with what they deem to be high-risk failure. So in order to be eligible for this trial, you had to have a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 45% and YJ class two to four symptoms, elevated natriuretic peptide levels, and evidence of worsening heart failure. That's key. And they defined worsening heart failure as either a recent hospitalization, so we're talking within three to six months, or those receiving IV diuretics within three months of enrollment. So even though it's a fantastic drug and it's in the guidelines, sadly, it's not available yet in Canada. (laughs) But uh, when it is, I suspect that it will be another medication that we can use to ensure that patients do not get readmitted with heart failure after they have had a recent hospitalization and you are trying to optimize their medical therapy. So as a general rule of thumb to remember is that if a patient is admitted for decompensated heart failure, the medications that you send them home on should be better than what they came in with. So Verisigwat would be something we could add to improve their medical therapy and help them avoid another hospitalization for heart failure. Do you think Verisigwat is coming to Canada anytime soon? Is there any word about that? Yes, we're working okay. on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes, we're definitely working on it. It already is available in the US, Europe, and Japan. So uh, I think um, definitely the submission has been made to Health Canada and hopefully we will hear soon. Okay. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. So, you know, Verisigwat's very new. Let's jump to something very old. So let's talk about Dijoxin, our our good old friend Dijoxin. So again, the recommendation in the 2021 guideline is not that different from prior guidelines. Um, So can you briefly discuss when you would add Dijoxin in the management of heart failure for patients who don't have AFib? Yeah, so I like to use digoxin when my patients are in atrial fibrillation with an uncontrolled heart rate, and they may have contraindications or intolerant to further increases in their dose of beta blockers. Now, that being said, digoxin can also be used if patients remain extremely symptomatic despite being on maximally tolerated doses of other guideline-directed medical therapies, because you know the DITCH trial did demonstrate a reduction in hospitalizations, both related to heart failure as well as other causes. So it is still a somewhat useful medication to consider if all else fails, and that's why you still find it in the guidelines. But it sounds as though this is really kind of a last resort drug for you. For most of us, I believe it, it was a little bit controversial. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, it did make its way into the guidelines again. Yes. Okay. Good to know. All right. So we've talked tons and tons about medications and, you know, medication classes and when we use them, let's talk about something different. Let's talk about some of, you know, the technologies that we use. When do you consider implanting an ICD or a CRT device in HEFREF? Sure. So patients who continue to have a left ventricular ejection fraction of 35% or less after being on automedical therapy for three months should be considered for a defibrillator and or cardiac resynchronization therapy, otherwise known as CRT. Now, it's important not to pull the trigger too early on device therapy because you know that most of these specific heart failure medications may actually contribute to an increase in left ventricular ejection fraction and therefore should be maximized before referral for ICD implantation or CRT. For example, switching to ARNI therapy or adding an abavardine should be considered for eligible patients before you think about referring them for a defibrillator or CRT. Generally speaking, though, if your patient has an LVEF of 35% or less after optimization of guideline direct medical therapies, they should be considered for a defibrillator with respect to primary prevention of sudden death. Now, obviously, if they've already had sustained VT or VF or even non-sustained episodes of such, they should likely get one for secondary prevention. Cardiac resynchronization therapy should be considered if patients have an LVEF at 35% or less in conjunction with NYJ class two to four symptoms and a QRS of at least 130 milliseconds with a left bundle branch block or a QRS of 150 milliseconds with other types of interventricular connection delay. And you can also consider cardiac resynchronization therapy for patients with permanent atrial fibrillation or patients who require chronic RV pacing and patients with symptomatic reduced LVEF. Um, however, if for some reason timely titration of pharmacologic therapies is not feasible or impractical uh, for reasons, the new CCS guidelines actually do say that referral for defibrillator or CRT should not be delayed because we know that devices can reduce mortality and CRT can also assist in reducing hospitalizations. So last question, what do you think are the top five takeaways from this 2021 CCS HEFREF guideline? Okay. Uh, okay. So first of all, I would say that the main message is remember the foundation of medical therapy for HEFREF currently consists of quadruple therapy, including ARNIs, ARBs, uh, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid antagonists, and SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, we prioritize ARNIs, but if patients cannot afford ARNIs or are intolerant to them, you could start an ACE inhibitor or ARB instead. The second thing I would say is that you need to assess clinical factors for additional interventions like evabradine, hydralazine or nitrates, digoxin, or even varicigouette once it becomes available in Canada. So just to recap, if patients are in sinus rhythm with a heart rate over 70 beats per minute, you could consider adding evabradine. Hydralazine and nitrates can be used if patients are African-American or intolerant ACE inhibitors or ARBs. If patients have suboptimal rate control, in atrial fibrillation or persistent symptoms, you could consider using digoxin. And finally, where we've put varicigouat is consider 
it if patients have had a recent heart failure hospitalization once it becomes available. The third thing I wanna say is that it's important to initiate standard therapies as soon as possible and titrate every two to four weeks to target or maximally tolerated doses over three to six months. Uh, the fourth point would likely be, you know, once patients continue to have an LVEF at 35% after being uh, on optimal medical therapy for three months, you know, less 35% or less, they should be considered for a defibrillator and or cardiac resynchronization therapy, but not before this point. Remember not to pull the trigger too early for this because most of these specific heart failure medications may actually contribute to an increase in LVEF and therefore should be maximized before referral for defibrillator and or cardiac resynchronization therapy. And finally, this is my last point, perhaps most importantly, remember that no management plan is complete without non-pharmacologic interventions as well, which include lifestyle management advice, ongoing patient education, and a treatment plan that is tailored to individual patients with well-defined treatment goals. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Poon. It's been a real pleasure to have you today walking us through the guidelines and explaining you know, some of the rationale behind why we do the things that we do. So we really appreciate your time and expertise. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode on the CCS and CHFS Heart Failure Guidelines Update defining a new pharmacologic standard of care for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, released in 2021. Special thanks to Dr. Stephanie Poon for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded by Catherine Lohr and produced by Christoph Kowalik. The Internist Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Lohr and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vasantha Mohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.